Good evening, this is Quintus Curtius. Welcome back to the podcast. You know, lately I've been reading this pretty good book, and it's called Special Tasks. Special Tasks. And the author is uh, Pavel and Anatoly Sudoplatov. Sudoplatov. This is a, it's a memoir by one of Stalin's special operators in the intelligence service, this guy, Pavel Sudoplatov. I hope I'm pronouncing that name right. This guy directed uh, the Stalinist administration for special tasks, which was a department responsible for all sorts of clandestine activities during the Stalinist era in the 30s, 40s. Things like kidnappings, assassination, sabotage, guerrilla warfare, setting up illegal networks inside the United States and Western Europe and collecting all sorts of intelligence things, intelligence information. So it's a really interesting memoir. This guy, really interesting guy, this uh, Platov, he had, had joined the Cheka or NKVD back in the, well, I think in the early 20s, or the early days of the Russian Revolution. And he rose up through the ranks by being, I guess, more of a ruthless killer than, than anyone else, apparently. And um, primarily, his he was responsible for a lot of famous operations, you know, the, the collecting of information from atomic scientists in the United States during and right after the Second World War. And he was also responsible for the assassination of Leon Trotsky. He organized that operation which assassinated... Leon Trotsky, who was living in exile in Mexico City. And for those who might not know Soviet history, Trotsky was a major contender to succeed Lenin. When Lenin became when Lenin became an invalid, but he lost out on the power struggles to Stalin in the 20s and he was forced into exile. And while he was in in exile, he conducted all sorts of agitation and all sorts of organizing to try to gain power and influence in the communist world. This was a big rivalry in the communist world. And it's kind of a hard to really understand now in the modern era because everything is a lot more transparent now than, than things used to be before the Internet age. But the communist world was a very closed world, very totalitarian type of world, and there was all this backstabbing and jockeying for power and all these sorts of rivalries and things. And, and uh, it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's at the same time, it's both fascinating and, and repulsive at the same time. It's the type of thing that it's, uh, it makes for interesting reading. But you, you say to yourself as you read these books, you say, my God, um, I'm glad I didn't live under that system. Who knows? Maybe in the future, people will read about our system and, and say the same say the same thing about us. Hard to know. But anyway, what I thought was interesting about this book, what I like about it, is there there's a, a great anecdote about how the writer met Stalin. And I don't know. For me, it's always been an, an interesting thing to read about meetings of famous people. I think in a previous podcast, or in a, actually it was a previous post I wrote for for my site for qcourteous.com. I talked about the French romantic writer Chateaubriand and how he met George Washington. Very, very fascinating 
anecdote, one of the, the type of thing that you remember. It's just so vivid. And I had a similar experience in reading about this meeting of Sudoplatov's meeting with, with Stalin. So I'll read that story, that anecdote, so you can get a flavor of it. And it's also good to know a little bit of the backstory. This is this this meeting came at a time when the great purges were in full swing. Stalin and his machinery of, of terror were uprooting everybody in the Soviet Union, essentially, and putting fear into everyone's heart. So nobody really knew from day to day, especially if you were an administrator or if you worked as an apparatchik in the government. You never knew if someone was going to denounce you or if someone was going to accuse you of something. And right before Sudoplatov got this assignment to assassinate Trotsky, he had been under review for some alleged transgression. I think it was something like not not recognizing that someone else was a, a traitor, which, you know, meant nothing. You know, if, if someone didn't like you, if you had some rival, people could use that as an excuse to denounce you and throw you to the wolves, throw you into the maw of the machine. So it was a scary thing. And he thought that he was going to be victimized by it. But apparently his immediate supervisor, the famous Lavrenti Beria, Lavrenti Beria was eventually to rise to become Stalin's secret police chief. Kind of a frightening, terrifying, ruthless type of individual. Now, these guys were all uh, scary individuals, just really uh, disturbing individuals. But at the same time, we should never think that we're superior to these people or we should think that the potential for evil doesn't exist in all of us because it does. So the worst thing I think we can all do, the worst thing that I think we can all do is to just read about characters in history and say, oh, I would never do that or I'm not capable of that or look how awful those guys are. And that, that may very well be true. All of those guys may be awful, but at the same time, we should never forget that under the right circumstances, people, no matter what their background, are capable of great things and great, greatly evil things. So that potential for good and bad exists within every human heart. And we should be aware of the fact that it's only circumstances and environment and our own free will that prevent the dark side from taking over the good side or what Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. So we should, we should always be mindful of that. The worst thing we can do is to try to exempt ourselves from these lessons and think that we're somehow better than, than these people. And we, you, you may, we may very well be better than, than they, but it should never be an excuse to get complacent because as we all go about our lives, our day-to-day -day lives, we see both good and evil. And it's only circumstance sometimes that can make the difference between one and the other. What I'll do now is read a little bit from Pseudoplatov's account of his meeting with Stalin. And there's a little bit of a lead-in to it as he enters the Kremlin building. So I'll go through that a little bit just to kind of get the flavor of the meeting out there. He says... The entryway into the Kremlin building was familiar to me from my first meeting with Stalin. 
We took a staircase to the second floor where we walked down a long, wide, carpeted corridor, past offices with high doors like rooms in a museum. The same guard who had admitted Yezhov and me to the building was on duty. This time he offered his military salute and the, and the traditional greeting to Beria. Sdravia Jelayu, Tavarich Beria. Good health to you, comrade Beria. Otherwise, everything was the same. The same empty corridors. My feelings were the same. I was apprehensive and tense with enthusiastic excitement. I felt I could hear my heart beating when Beria opened the door and we entered a reception room so huge it made the three writing tables seem tiny. There were three people, one in military uniform and two in tunics the same style as Stalin's. The short, dumpy-appearing man in a green tunic greeted Beria with a low, emotionless voice. Later I learned that he was A.N. Poskrebyshev, chief of Stalin's secretariat. It appeared to me that there was a strict, unwritten rule banning emotions in this room. Poskrebyshev led the way into Stalin's office and closed the door behind us without a sound. It was my third meeting with Stalin. He rose from his desk to greet, to greet us. We shook hands in the middle of the office and Stalin motioned us to sit at the long table covered with a green beige cloth. Only a few feet from this table, but not against the wall, was Stalin's personal desk and I noticed that the files on his desk were arranged in perfect order. Behind his desk hung a portrait of Lenin and on the adjacent wall were portraits of Marx and Engels. Everything in the office appeared the same as when I'd last seen him, but Stalin looked different. He was focused, poised, and calm. He was not putting on a show for us, but radiated a natural self-confidence and ease that we found impressive. He focused on his visitors and made us feel he was listening attentively to every word and weighing it carefully. Was it really so? I cannot be certain, but Stalin seemed but Stalin listened intently to Beria, who told him, Comrade Stalin, having exposed on the party's orders the NKVD foreign department's former leadership's treacherous attempts to deceive the government, we suggest that Comrade Sudoplatov be appointed a deputy director of NKVD foreign department in order to assist recently mobilized party activists to comply with the orders of the government. Stalin frowned. His pipe was in his hands, and although full of tobacco, it was not lit. Then he struck a wooden match with a gesture known to all who watched newsreels, and moved an ashtray close to him. He did not address my nomination, but urged Beria to outline the priorities for intelligence operations abroad. While Beria talked, Stalin rose from the table and began to pace back and forth across the room, slowly and silently, in his soft Georgian boots. Although he moved around the room, there was no impression that he was not fully absorbed. On the contrary, his concentration on Beria's words could be felt. I am still impressed by the simplicity of Stalin's reactions. It was hard to imagine that such a man could deceive you. His reactions were so natural, without the slightest sense of him posing. I also noticed, that certain, I also noticed a certain harshness in his remarks which he did not try to conceal. 
This gruffness was the most typical feature of his dealings with anybody summoned for an audience, an inseparable component of his personality, just like the, sta- just like the stern look that came from smallpox, smallpox, smallpox marks on his face. There are no important political figures in the Trotskyite movement except Trotsky himself. If Trotsky is finished, the threat will be eliminated, Stalin said, and returned to his seat opposite us. Then, slowly, he began to speak of his dissatisfaction with the present state of our intelligence operations, which, he said, were not active enough. Stalin stressed that the elimination of Trotsky had first been assigned to to Spiegelglas in 1937, but he had failed to fulfill this important government mission. Then Stalin stiffened, as if given an order, and said, Trotsky should be eliminated within a year, before war inevitably breaks out. Without the elimination of Trotsky, as the Spanish experience shows, when the imperialists attack the Soviet Union, we cannot rely on our allies in the international communist movement. They will face great difficulties in fulfilling their international duty to destabilize the rear of our enemies by sabotage operations and guerrilla warfare if they have to deal with treacherous infiltrations by Trotskyites in their ranks. So this gives a window. This little passage here that I've just read gives a window into the soul of Stalin in some ways. The... And when you read about other men like him, men of probable psychopathic composition, but yet appearing normal on the surface, they all were able to give the appearance of being totally sincere, totally normal, totally relaxed. And yet you never really knew what was going on inside their heads. You could never really tell. And this is really what made them so deadly, so frighteningly deadly, is that Even an experienced NKVD man, like the author who wrote the passage I just read, he could never really understand what was going on inside Stalin's mind. And this was the the type of individual who could just have whole populations liquidated without a second thought. And yet he would just pace around his office with his pipe in his hand and convince himself that it was necessary for the survival of the revolution in his mind. So it's it's very illuminating. In Stalin's mind, in the mind of the communist leadership at that time, they were engaged in a life-and-death struggle against the entire rest of the world, whereas if they didn't actively do things to undermine everyone else, they themselves would be undone. So this 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 explains a lot in many ways. It, it, it can give an explanation for the, the extreme brutality, the atrocities, the totalitarian impulses that the Soviet Union, at least in its early days, manifested. So that's, I think, an interesting point that we should, uh, that we should keep in mind. And the... the uh, the author goes on to talk about the assassination of Trotsky, which was also uh, a perversely fascinating thing to read about. Uh, the 
organizer of it, this this guy, Pseudoplatov, he first tried to use a, a team of assassins who burst into Trotsky's villa outside Mexico City, and they were unable to to do what they came there to do. He was hiding, Trotsky was hiding under a bed, so they just shot up the place and didn't accomplish anything. But then they used, then Pseudoplatov used a a communist fanatic, a veteran of the Spanish Civil War, a guy named Ramon Mercader. Ramon Mercader. And this guy was a true believer, a true fanatic. He was someone who had infiltrated himself into Trotsky's circle. He entered the residence, entered Trotsky's residence, and, and bludgeoned him to death with a with a um, like a, a climbing axe, a, a, a pickaxe, essentially. And it was a, a very brutal, very disturbing type of murder. And he was arrested. He did 20 years in a Mexican prison for that. And they didn't even know who he was. He, he kept his cover story so well that they didn't even know who he was for years. The official story was he had killed Trotsky because of a dispute over money or a, a dispute over personal issues, embezzlement, things like that. And everyone suspected it was a hit that it was an assassination um, by the Kremlin, but nobody could really prove it. And this guy, this assassin, uh, Ramon Mercader, he spent 20 years, 20 years in prison. He was willing to do that. And it's, uh, it's just, it's easy to forget just how fanatical at that time that the communists really were. We should never forget that any time these extremist movements rear their heads. We need to educate ourselves about their thinking, what their thought processes are. And I wrote an article recently on, on ISIS's doctrines. You can find it on my website. And in many ways, there are similarities. There are, there are similarities. The extreme brutality for its own sake, the, the, the terroristic aspect of it. But, you know, nothing lasts forever. Nothing lasts forever. And at one time, even as late as the 1980s, it seemed as if the communist system would last for decades, generations. And yet it all came to an end in 1989. You know, literally, just within the span of six months, the whole system just unraveled. And that's not really something that's related to this podcast, but I'll, I'll mention a few words about it because it's such a it's such a important thing to keep in mind. That... What can seem permanent, what can seem permanent and what can seem immutable, often is not. Often is not. For example, everyone thought that the communist edifice, the communist system would last for generations. And it seemed as if in the span of six months, the whole thing just vanished with the wind. It just blew away. It was literally like that. If you read some of the accounts of what the fall of the Soviet Union was like, it was literally literally like there were stories where you had military units in, in bases. And what would happen is uh, the, the commander would just assemble everybody together and say, hey, look, guys, you know, we can't pay you anymore. But can you hang around here for another couple of weeks just so we don't have people loot all the tanks and planes and everything? And, and I mean, that's that's how bad it was. I mean, people just woke up. And everything had changed. You know, now maybe it didn't happen instantaneously, 
but it happened very, very quickly. It did. There was no gradual, long, slow, slow motion implosion. It was literally, literally like you wake up in the morning and the whole landscape changed. And you know, when we think about it, who's to say that the same thing can't happen here with us in the United States? Who's to say that this can't happen? You know, we like to think that a decline or a collapse of the existing system might play out over a long period of time where there's time to recover and do this and do that and take all these remedial measures. But what if it's not true? What if that's not the case? What if we end up going the same way as the old Soviet Union system did? What if all of our debt culture, our conspicuous expenditures, our, our, our living beyond our means, our economic frivolities, our over, over-focus uh, on uh, military spending, arguably, uh, the in some ways, extreme wealth inequalities and uh, unequal distributions of, of finance, of capital, of money in the, in the country. What if all of this congeals at once in a very, very rapid play-out type of scenario? Who's to say that can't happen? Why wouldn't it happen? I mean, it's true. Our economy, our society, we like to think is healthier than the old Soviet Union's was. And it, and it is. I think by any objective measure, we can say that. But who's to say that we should get complacent about ourselves? Who's to say? When you strip away the industrial base, when you impoverish, impoverish a large segment of the population, when you have a, a dramatic inequality of distribution of wealth at the top, who's to say that some sort of collapse can't happen quickly and rapidly? Maybe faster than anyone might think possible. Who knows? But that's something to think about. That's something to think about as we ponder the fate of the old Soviet Union. And I want you to think about that when you replay in your mind that that story that I read about the meeting with Stalin. At one time, it seemed like the system would last forever. At one time, it seemed like it was powerful beyond belief. And it was. It truly was. Let's not delude ourselves into thinking that it was all a a mirage. It really was powerful, but yet power has a way of evaporating. It has a way of evaporating. And I've said before, and I'll say it again, all glory is fleeting. All glory is fleeting. And we should be mindful of this because therein lies the origin and the source of true humility, something that we should never, ever lose sight of. I'm Quintus Curtius. Good night.